When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alina is already cackling like a mad woman. Why are you cackling, Alina? I'm cackling because we've got a really, really, really epic, epic episode coming up. So with us today, we've got Jonathan Waterlow, who's a historian, writer and podcaster. He hosts his own podcast called Voices in the Dark, where we learn how to be human. He's also published an absolutely fantastic book that I highly recommend called It's Only a Joke, Comrade. And he's here to talk to us about this very book and about the humour under Stalin. So welcome. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I'm dubious about how much fun you can actually have under Stalin, though. Is it like a dry sense of humour we're going to be looking at? It's pretty dark. Yeah. It's a pretty dark sense of humour. <laughs> <laughs> so set the scene for us and talk us through. What, life, what is life like under the average, for the average citizen under Stalin? It's quite contradictory, really, because on the one hand, there's the world that's being promised, which is going to be one of great abundance of equality for everybody, of wonderful mass transit, like the Moscow Metro is actually quite a success story, for example, palaces for the people. And there's the great hope of bettering yourself, that there's education available to people who have, most of whom have never had the opportunity to even gain basic literacy. So there's all of this, but then the reality in the 30s is that most people are lucky if they have a corner of a room to live in for their whole family. They would share rooms with multiple other families with just a corner to call their own. And they're being incited to fulfill and overfulfill crazy production targets because Stalin wants, he believes that it's completely essential to massively industrialize the Soviet Union because he thinks otherwise we're going to be invaded, the revolution will be over, so now we need to become a world-beating power in a fraction of the time, which leads to everything being dictated from above and saying, yeah, just produce a million of this, a million of that, with no real care about what happens, uh, about the possibility of whether that could be done. And then as time goes on, as we'll, we'll talk about, there's this increasing sense of, there's internal enemies. It's not working. So there must be people to blame. So you better start denouncing people because otherwise maybe the guilt uh, will be pinned onto you instead. And it becomes this horrifying situation in which people are being told that they're living in or building utopia whilst at the same time they could be arrested for nothing or for a joke. So humour during Stalin's time was what was dangerous. What would happen to someone if they were caught making a joke? Because we can all have a guess that it's most likely a Labour camp or prison sentence, isn't it? 
is a pretty good guess. Um, I've got an example here to maybe illustrate the point, a joke which um, a few different people told, and I can tell you what happened to them. And the joke goes, Stalin was out swimming one day when he began to drown. A peasant who was passing by jumps in and pulls him safely to the shore. And Stalin is super grateful and he starts to ask the peasant, what would you like as a reward? You can have anything. At this point, the peasant realizes who he saved. And he's like, no, 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 I don't want anything. Just please, please don't tell anyone else that I saved you. And (laughs) (laughs) that's all he wants. That's all he needs. Um, A guy called Mikhail Fedotov um, told this joke in 1935 at a little party in his apartment. And he was arrested and given five years in the gulag. And the friends of his that were at the gathering who failed to denounce him each got a one-year sentence. Um, a guy called Boris Orman told the same joke in 1937, which is the height of the mass arrests, so a very bad idea. Uh, he just worked in a bakery, and he said this in the, cam- the canteen at work, and he was put away in the gulag for 10 years. Um, and then a, a candidate party member, this uh, woman called uh, Pamielova, she told it in 1934, sort of got away with it for a while. But then as things are tightening up, people remember that she told this joke and she's arrested in 1937 and she almost gets shot for it. Somehow, I'm not sure why it's commuted to a mere uh, 10 year sentence, I think. But she could have been killed for that joke. Why would you then, I mean, bother joking, would you not just like completely not make any jokes if it can result in being sent away for years at a time why do people risk it i think there's something really deeply human and essential about it that like if we stand here we can think yeah i mean look at it on paper why would you take the risk and yet Mm. when we do face uh scary unchangeable uh realities and problems then there's this urge that comes up in us to make a joke of it because it feels so much better to be able to laugh in the face of danger and of death than it does to feel like I'm trapped. There's nothing I can do except maybe break down or cry. And maybe on a a similar level, there's been an awful lot of coronavirus jokes and memes. And even though many, many people are dying, I think humor has been one of the most uh, important and vital responses to it. Um, And it, it really helps in, say back in the Stalin context, to have this sense of agency that you get. That you're like, I see all these contradictions. Life is not what they're telling me it is. I kind of have this urge to say, I'm not stupid. And it becomes this really powerful statement of, I joke, therefore I am. Mm. That if I can say this, if I can say the emperor has no clothes, if I can let off the pent-up aggression and anger and despair in me through a joke, there's a way of getting past that, of, of relieving the tension. Um, it also, it also works through a kind of gallows humor effect that to help us understand what the nature of that, that release is. That if you can put something in a joke where things are not meant to make sense, where there's a, we know we laugh at the end of it, we laugh at the absurdity and the unpredictability of things, then it helps us to sort of name it and give it a shape and put this subject, this fear in a box, maybe just put it over to the side without it remaining this kind of shapeless terror that's hanging over us. And it, so it works a bit like a placebo then that we, we tell a joke and act as if it's going to be okay, that things aren't as bad as they seem. And subjectively, we can feel an awful lot better for doing that, even though objectively nothing changed outside of ourselves. But internally, it makes all the difference in the world. I want to throw something at Alex. Have you not come across anything like that in the First World War? 
like joking around about yeah but no one shoots you in the face for making a joke about being in the first world war there's a difference isn't there but yeah soldiers are always at it with black humor from time immemorial like right up to i've got friends that served in the balkans in afghanistan and iraq and stuff but it's a bit different when you're all collectively in a situation like fighting a war and when you're at home and there's people spying on your every move and you could end up being punished for it that's different i think it becomes super important to choose who you're going to tell the joke to Mm, a lot of the cases that i'm describing are where there's been a mistake made or the regime moves the goalposts that they tighten up as time goes by and because jokes are quite memorable it could be that you told something that was a bit on the line in 1933-34 like the woman pamielova that i mentioned yeah And then later people like, wait a minute, you know, we're looking for enemies now. We need to fulfill a quota of of people removed because we know that a certain number of spies must be in there. I remember you told that joke and suddenly it becomes so much more dangerous than it seemed at the time that you told it. And there's no way that people in that way we can understand many times they could tell a joke in the open. But it wasn't that dangerous then. They couldn't quite have predicted that it would become like a a death sentence or a prison sentence three years later. So what is the most extreme punishment you've come across for someone telling a joke? There's got to be something out there. I I think it's the the ones who, who were shot. I didn't read about the... Uh, like cases of of particular cruel and unusual like torture and punishment though people were tortured um, sometimes by the NKVD the secret police when they were brought in for telling a joke and then hours and days long until they admit that what they I mean it's, it's interesting they they often admit they told the joke but they're like but it was a joke Guys, like I, it, it doesn't mean that I'm an anti-Soviet agitator or a terrorist or something, but then they're ground down, broken down, physically abused until the point where they, they give in and say, yeah, okay, I'll sign anything. Just please stop. Mm. Um, and I think that the, with cruel and unusual and the worst kind of punishment, to me, it's this retroactive justice that the, 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 the goalposts are being moved. It's as if you were a star tennis player and you had all of your wins taken away from you because in 2020 they make the court smaller and they go back and judge all of your previous games by the new court size and then you have no chance Mm. no it is insane isn't it it's like like you say it's just completely different scenario which groups of people are most likely to be caught yeah it's an it's an interesting question because there's there's different kinds of of sources that that show that this is like a rich and very widespread culture i suppose an unofficial culture um which seems to cross across uh, all all different boundaries of like nationalities backgrounds levels of education and so on but the ones who are, are caught and punished um tend to be overrepresented for those who are higher educated the ones who are older as in are seen as adults rather than children um and men much more so than women um from the research that i did anyway and it, it's, it's interesting because all of these different groups of people are telling much the same joke, sharing them, and it might get noted down um, in these reports the regime compiles, um, which they, they compile because they, they, they failed to create avenues for public expression of 
uh, moods and interests and so on. So they're like, oh shit, what are the people actually thinking? We better start spying on them so we know what the opinion is. And they collect jokes because they find it very suspicious material. And everybody is telling them. But then whilst just as many women I might see telling just exactly the same jokes as before, uh, as men, but it's the men who are punished. Because the, the women, the best that I could work this out is that women were just not taken seriously. And that children were seen as more likely to be able to, that they could be reformed and changed. I mean, I guess that's a common attitude. You think, well, yeah. you know, they're just kids. And the higher educated people, I think the regime saw them as the most dangerous. Whereas if it was an earthy worker cracking a joke, they're like, well, he doesn't necessarily know better. Probably best that we give him more education and a rap on the knuckles than send him to the gulag. Mm. Stalin's name officially technically means like man of steel and then Stalin is like man of shit or shit man like a really bad superhero I just I'm so sorry I sat there laughing for 10 minutes about this um but I'm going to compose myself right now can you tell us a little bit more about some of these kind of political jokes that would come up about Stalin <laughs> But I mean, him and the other leaders are really popular targets for jokes because they're the visible representations of the regime. And so there's the great desire to just bring them down to everyday reality with this comic thud. Um, so there's there's jokes, for example, about like keeping Stalin's mother under careful guard so that she'll never get pregnant again and make another Stalin. Or there was the... <laughs> important because obviously that's logically what would happen otherwise <laughs> his mother was very old by this point i don't think she needed the guards um and there, there's a guy called sergey kirov who was like the boss of leningrad he's assassinated um on the 1st of december 1934 and this it's meant to then be a period of intense mourning but instead it kind of broke the fourth wall of the Soviet drama that people are going, Oh, look, these, these guys are mortal and they're given some time off work. They're supposed to have five minutes silence um, during the day, but people see it more as an opportunity to you know, ordinary life has been turned upside down. It was like the, the, the last couple of days of school of term where people are like, I'm not doing work. I'm not engaging in this. I'm going to do whatever I want. And say in the five minutes of silence, people start making as much noise as possible, like banging pots and pans. One brilliant um, example I saw <laughs> reported was one of the, the agents writing about the disruption saying, and this guy farted insolently during the five minutes silence, <laughs> which they then report as a criminal act. Other people think Kirov was ridiculously fat compared to them. They're, they're, they're on rations. Many people are, are starving and barely making it through. So they start joking like, well, is there going to be more food for us then? Because now he's not eating. There's probably going to be enough for the entire city. Um, others oh. see this, this opportunity to like say, well, who is he then? And they did this with other leaders. They'd take the name, like with the, the Sralin example, and they'd look at Kirov, turn his name backwards, and it becomes Vorik, which means like petty thief. And they're like, ah, that's what he really is. They're the sort of code-breaking idea that could feel quite real if you did it. And one of the other leaders called Varashilov, um, someone scratched out the end of his name um, under a portrait. And so it just said Vor, which is thief. 
so that they'd pick these these leaders and just go no you're exactly the people i'm going to blame for everything and they become the major target for people's frustration and anxieties and we love a good smut joke on history hack um we're pretty much getting renowned for them yet and they do go down that road as well uh <laughs> the one about Kalanin receiving rejuvenation treatment his genitals genitals were replaced with a dog's and once he left the hospital from then on he did everything doggy style <laughs> can, can you imagine what i was going through sitting in a russian serious state archive reading this yeah. <laughs> to what extent do they go down the smutty joke rule do they get much worse than that i think i think you know that they do <laughs> <laughs> what's the one about uh stalin getting buggered by kalanin is that i mean this was, was a the really other way around I yeah, that's a bit bizarre. Yeah, there's... So th I wish there were more smutty jokes. I found a few, but I think the authorities and even the modern-day archivists are really quite prudish. Mm. So they would these things would be recorded, but not necessarily put in the typed-up, finished version of the description of the case or the, the witness testimonies. So mm -hmm. sometimes the original handwritten notes were still in the files I had access to. So I'm like squinting and trying to decipher the handwriting going, does it really say that? Yeah. Um, so there are some, the one you're, you're talking about is this weird scenario where Kalinin, he's kind of the older leader, technically the prime minister, but Stalin's really the boss. They're, they're doing some work, but they get kind of bored. They get a little bit horny and then they start um, wrestling with each other. And they're like, yeah, let, let's do it. And Kalinin says, okay, how about I'm going to go first and I'll bang you, Stalin, because otherwise I think you're going to cheat me. So he buggers Stalin. And then before they're going to switch things around, he wanders off into a room and writes a government decree making sodomy illegal. And he's like, so if you want, if you want the time in the gulag, come and get it, mate. Oh my God. Like, where does your brain go to come up with that story? I wondered if, and I don't know for sure that this was like a joke way to try and make sense of a new law outlawing homosexuality is yeah. like a way to sort of explain that combined with just like, hey, we don't, we think homosexuality is wrong. So we're going to say the people we don't like are doing it. So Molotov went abroad and had sex with the wife of some general. When the general later had sex with her, he pulled out his member to discover an old condom stuck to the end of it saying, made in the USSR. <laughs> that devilish USSR is sneaking around everywhere these days, even up people's vaginas, he exclaimed. <laughs> I feel like you find these funnier than I do. <laughs> <clears throat> that really says something about my mind, really, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> do you think, out of interest, does it say it's just something about a dirty sense of humour, or do you feel like the Polish background plays a part here? I feel the like there's some humor. cultural kind of Eastern European thing going on in that she is more predisposed to laugh at Russians than I am, so I don't find them <laughs> quite as hilarious as she does. I think it's both. I think it's yeah. a bit of both, to be honest. That's why I'm sitting here laughing so hard and trying to be completely and utterly professional. Plus, she's just a dick sometimes. Oh, yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> um, but Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <clears throat> so this is something that I've, I've actually really enjoyed talking about, um, which is um, the cult of personality, especially about leaders like Stalin, Mao, and well, even Hitler. So was there such a thing at the time or is it more of a myth and how does it come out in these kind of jokes? Yeah, it, it, it kind of makes you think, how could there be a Stalin cult if this is what is happening? Um, but I think it actually, it, it both, it proves something and it disproves something else. I think it actually proves that Stalin's cult of personality existed or certainly like confirms that because it's this truism in the, in the historiography that, uh, it's, it, I mean, it's even in school textbooks. It's like, so given all of these terrible things that are happening, why on earth would people have gone along with this and believed in it? Ah, okay. They were brainwashed because they believed in big brother. They believed in Stalin. Stalin is seen everywhere. He's seen as associated with everything positive. And he's sort of put above politics as though he's this demigod figure that even if everything else was shit, you could believe in Stalin. Um, and that's been wheeled out a lot. And yet, people haven't really connected the dots to like, well, what did people actually think about this? It's as though we make the assumption that, oh, Stalin's on the cover of everything. And in the newspaper, they say he's wonderful and people cried at his funeral. So I suppose it's, that was their reaction. They loved him. Well, no, he was actually popular enemy number one when it came to jokes. Um, he's the guy that people turn to with some of the most uh, degrading and brutal and certainly the most consistent kinds of jokes which means that I think the cult wasn't effective at all in elevating him above politics in terms of people being able to criticize him. But it had made him such the prominent figure of the regime that people would turn naturally to joke about him. Like it's the, it's the double-edged sword. They want him to be synonymous with the regime and to be the main figure. And because he is, he becomes the main target for the jokes. So there is as well joking about like everyday life. This one I do find funny. So Stalin summons a member of a number of economists and says he wants to hold a massive feast for all the people, a feast so great that they're going to party for weeks. And he asked the economists how much it's going to cost, but no one would say. Then one spoke up and said, oh, it can be done very cheaply. Buy a single bullet and shoot yourself. Then everyone will celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> How much did they go down this road of just joking about the whole predicament they found themselves in? I feel like that's the most common aspect to it, that it's these weren't so much dramatic, rebellious acts as people trying to just make do and make light of the circumstances that they're living in. And I think some of the funniest jokes to me are these sort of running in jokes, like, or like quiet jokes where, say, they hang portraits of the leaders in the toilets or there was, um, there's this habit in Russian that you can name buildings or whatever after somebody. So 
um, the Lenin Library in Russian is Biblioteka Imeni Lenina. So then someone in their workplace has, the, the, by the sign for the toilet, it says toilet, so they add Imeni Stalina afterwards. <laughs> they just like little subtle things like that or at a shooting range, uh, like a, apparently they had shooting ranges at schools uh, or at least technical colleges. And Stalin's portrait is surprisingly very close to the targets and is looking pretty worse for wear. Um, or people will, there's so many slogans that they're being incited to believe in that they wheel them out at the wrong moment. So when bad news arrives, they go, thank you, comrade Stalin, for this happy life. <laughs> it's kind of all set up that there's such, a dis- there's such a disconnect between what they're being told on the radio and in the newspapers that they have all the material for just making it seem ridiculous by just repeating the official stuff in the moment. And it becomes this kind of shadow side to everyday life um, that really informs, I think, how people experience their lives. So there's a couple of things that happen throughout Stalin's reign. I think we'll we'll go with reign because he did literally reign. Um, I'm going to tell the joke first and then I'm going to ask the question. So Mm -hmm. the joke goes, the ghost of Lenin visits Stalin. How are things, he asks. Everything's fine. The people are with me, replies Stalin. If you carry out the second five-year plan, they will soon be with me, Lenin replies. (laughs) Sorry. Anyway, (laughs) so we're talking about the five-year plan. So can you tell us what it was for our listeners? Because some of our listeners might not know what it is. And how do people joke about it? Well, apart from that obvious, really cool joke. So there were a series of five-year plans, uh, which began uh, late 1928. And they're, they're meant to be the means by which uh, the Soviet economy was going to be massively industrialized and pushed into the future. And so they said, okay, we're going to make a plan. It's a five-year plan. Everything is clear. There's very clear targets. Oh, by the way, you need to complete it in four years because we know you can do it, guys. We know you can do it. Um, and this is, this is kind of where Orwell's all, all iconic two plus two equals five comes from, I think, that they, they're trying to create a reality that's impossible. And they go back to back these five-year plans. So they're meant to be creating the sense of amazing speed and achievement. But most people are experiencing it as this unending hell. Um, So jokes go around about, so what's the longest joke ever? The five-year plan. Or (laughs) (laughs) they're being told, like, we're upping your consciousness, your class consciousness, um, great respect for education and so on. This is brilliant. This is nourishment. And people are saying... I really, I really can't eat that. We're going to need food. By the end of the second year plan, we're going to be eating tractors because that's all we're going to have because all they're making is machinery and not attending to people needing to eat. And it just, that becomes a running joke in and of itself that the, the five-year plan, its real outcome is incredible suffering and hardship for people. I mean, speaking of incredible suffering, the Great Terror, this is something that I didn't think would be turned into a joke, but it is. Um, First of all, tell our listeners what it was, and secondly, about the humour that came along with it. Yeah, the the Great Terror is a name that was applied to it later by a historian called Robert Conquest. It wasn't really called that at the time, but it describes um, mass arrests and kind of the height of the paranoia of people denouncing each other, being arrested for nothing. So between about 1936 to 38 about a million people at least were arrested and three quarters of a million were summarily executed. It's, it kind of came about from this fear that there was going to be war, international war, probably with Germany, this obsession with an idea of inter- internal enemies, screwing things up, sabotaging the mission. And it, 
it, it follows this along with a massive chain reaction of denunciations combined with the um, various parts of the security services being given figures for like, these are the number of people that you should arrest um, sometimes called quotas, but <laughs> even if they were meant to be limits, cause that's the word that was used, they approached it with a five year plan mentality. We, we better beat these limits and show that we're performing the best that we can. Um, so it becomes the, the great terror is this really the worst kind of purity spiral. It's like cancel culture on steroids. People denounce or will be denounced. And so humor comes about in reaction to that for the reasons I think I, I described earlier, that in this sense of madness and instability, it really called out for the desperate sense of, of relief of some kind. There wasn't any clear rationale to people about how this could be happening. And so it was better at least briefly, I'm not saying that this solved people's problems, but it could for a moment to find comedy in the madness than to collapse in grief. So some of the jokes that came up would even turn the experience of the fear um, into like a mock victory for socialism. So uh, people often thought, read about and talked about the fact that life seemed to be better in Nazi Germany for German citizens. They're like, well, they say in Nazi Germany, there is a, every, each worker has their own car. But in the USSR, we have two cars. Each of us has one of the NKVD's Black Raven prison cars and an ambulance. <laughs> they're more like proverbs, aren't they? There's another one where they mm. say that the only people that avoid um, problems with the secret police are the people in cemeteries. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's so grim. And you have to, it's one of the, the issues I always face when trying to give like a talk or tell people about it. And, and they're like, what's the best joke? And I'm like, I'm going to need to give you some context because yeah, <laughs> on its own, but that's why they matter because they are of their context. This is people dealing with real varieties of experience that they share in common. And if you can both laugh at it, then together, especially you're able to go. I mean, let's try and imagine for ourselves, like you've lost your job you've lost your house, you kind of got nothing but the bottle of wine and the friend sitting next to you, you've been left by your girlfriend, whatever, your parents have disowned you, and you just crack a joke and you get to laugh for a few minutes and just say, screw the universe, okay. And it helps, even if it's not going to stop the NKVD battering down your door. There's another one in there that I just have to throw in. So the old proverb says that we all live by the grace of God, now tell now tell it differently we all live by the grace of the nkvd yeah there's there's another one i've got to tell you which was it's it's an off-the-cuff joke so what i'm about to describe isn't like a set-up joke this really happened a young um komsomol girl so a member of like the the communist youth league was speaking to essentially a career advisor and she says when i grow up i want to join the nkvd and the guy actually answers he's like why i mean who is there left to catch <laughs> which launches a massive investigation <laughs> oh oh my god and he was telling the truth as well yeah. like literally i think we should touch on a little bit of culture um and we want to know more about sexism and, misog sexism and misogyny in the soviet union and how that impacted on humor yeah so theoretically and i think it's it's more true in the 1920s before when my book is about um, women were increasingly seen as these liberated superwomen. The new Soviet woman would be the equal of the men around her and was encouraged to go and join the factories. Like a great celebrity of the time was a female tractor driver. 
who was seen as like this icon um, that, that women could look up to and aspire to be. So that, that all seems quite positive. And yet, as Stalin gains more power, there's kind of a shift to like, no, I think we want a bigger population, plus more traditionalist feelings are coming back in. So there's going to be essentially state awards for having lots and lots of children. Now, women get really stuck in this bind where they're then supposed to do both. They're meant to be like wielding uh, a hammer in one hand and holding one, preferably more babies in the other hand. So I would have thought, because jokes generally comment on changes, things that people are unsure or anxious about, that there would be quite a lot of this in the jokes that I found. But there was very little. Instead, there just seemed to be really old school sexist and misogynistic representations of women. They're practically just part of the scenery or they turn up to create problems, usually related to having sex with uh, the wrong person or even even the example with the condom lodged in the woman's vagina that we had earlier. Like, well, the woman's only purpose there is to be a problem and to be seen in a really degrading way. So why is that? And I thought the best that I could, I could work it out is that a, a lot of these jokes are being told by men who are really not too happy with the change in women's status. Um, and the most... Uh, actually, I, I think it'd be worth talking about the fact that human research has its own problem with this. There's Ever since the 1970s, there emerged this idea that women and men have distinctly different kinds of humor, um, kind of in that men are from Mars and women are from Venus idea that oh, women laugh at different things. Uh, they don't like aggressive or sexual jokes and things like that. But then <clears throat> when, when you look at I me, mean, yeah. <laughs> and, but then when you look at the studies closely, you're like, uh-huh. So when you did the tests, mostly it was odd little cartoons of sexual and aggressive themes and women are always being abused and the subjects of the aggression in this. So it's not very surprising that the women in these studies wouldn't have found them particularly funny as compared to the men. So it's, it's as though the new Soviet woman is missing from these jokes, maybe because it was too much for the men to handle at the time. Um, but the, what I discovered in terms of and what I mentioned earlier is that women are not punished nearly as harshly for telling even the crudest, nastiest, most horrible jokes because the regime is fundamentally sexist and doesn't take them seriously as, as political entities. So if a man tells a joke, they're like, he's an anti-Soviet agitator. If a woman tells the same joke, they're like, she's a silly woman. And so they could be punished at like a lower level, like reduced opportunities or shamed in the workplace. But it was less likely that you couldn't count on it. It was still less likely that they would be arrested and sent to the gulag for it. Okay, I've got a weird, weird couple of jokes for you, I guess. Go for it. So, a young man and a girl met in the theatre. Between the acts, they sat and talked. The young man was from a very good family and was used to intellectual discussion. So he turned to the young lady and said, Do you favour platonic love? She, being a typical Moscow girl, asked, Do you mean, do I like it from behind? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Extremely basic, extremely crude, and that's kind of how women turn up or, or they are seen only in relation to men. So here's another one where Stalin summons Krupskaya, who's the widow of Lenin, super important, super influential woman, and he summons her because he doesn't like her, they don't get on, and says, so you think you can get away with anything just because you're Lenin's widow? Well, tomorrow I'll declare that someone else is Lenin's widow. 
and it's this weird sense that he's he's so uh up there in his sense of enormous power that he can just swap her out like she doesn't matter that she's only important because of her status related to lenin mm. another woman could just be put in there and it's totally fine because stalin has total power and who cares about women that's kind of the vibe that comes through in these jokes there's different li- layers of uh, darkness to it isn't there so what's the scope of your book so it's it's from about 1928 till about 1941. It's meant to be roughly when Stalin is in control up to the outbreak of war. There's a kind of clear picture of Stalinism, but not Stalinism at war. And criminal um, files and stuff. Is that where you've got most of your... I'm interested in your sources. Yeah, when I first set out to do this, the general advice I got was, you are going to fail. <laughs> You'll never find these sources. It was clear that it existed, this this habit, this culture, this widespread joke telling. And I saw traces of it in um, books that have been published about popular opinion, but they'd sort of be used as a bit of seasoning, a bit of spice, and then moved on from with no one going, wait a minute, how? why are they telling jokes? How could that be? Um, there are loads of collections published since folklore-style collections of Soviet jokes, but you never know who said it or where they came from. They're just like joke books produced by culture so I needed something else so I mixed together um, some diaries where people recording at the time what they experienced the accounts of um, foreign correspondents journalists who actually lived in the Soviet Union and could at the time publish what they'd been hearing without facing terrible consequences and then a massive part of it was looking at essentially criminal investigation files of people who were arrested and sentenced for telling jokes. So that was really the striking gold moment where I managed to look at hundreds and hundreds of criminal files and read who said it, where, to whom. Mm. There's, Like I mentioned, there's also reports on the opinion of the people, um, which often contain jokes, even if there's no reflection on them at the time. They're just like, they told a joke, they're a bad person. But I could take that look at what the context was and say, okay, what do we make of this? What does this say about how people are experiencing their lives at the time? A fascinating subject. What's it called? It's called It's Only a Joke, Comrade. Humour, Trust and Everyday Life Under Stalin. Sounds fantastic. Before we wrap up, just plug your uh, podcast as well for us. Yeah, my, thank you. My podcast is called Voices in the Dark and our tagline is Learning How to Human. Uh, We talk about sex, relationships, philosophy, psychology, generally trying to understand how the hell to be human in this crazy world. Uh, Sometimes with interviews, sometimes we go deep into particular uh, books and ideas like stoicism, ideas about social influence, that kind of stuff. Getting uh, crazier by the minute as well. So I think you will never run out of material. Yeah, (laughs) or just get more and more sad about how the material's not helping. (laughs) John, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about humour under Stalin with some absolutely fantastic, amazing jokes. Sex jokes, which we of course love, and my favourite of all, Stalin. <laughs> she's going to be laughing at that for hours I'm so glad this is our last recording today because otherwise she's just going to randomly cackle through everything else that we do I'm glad that I've added value to your life yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you 
Join us tomorrow when Andrew Wallace Hadrill will be with us. As you can imagine, Alina was bouncing off the walls because he came to talk all about Herculaneum, which is one of her favourite subjects. Don't miss it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.